Okay, well, this morning, I want to share a message with you that I entitle Living Testimony. And I want to start out with a, a remarkable thing that happened. One of the most daring and sophisticated rescue attempts ever mounted happened in July of 2018 in northern Thailand. It's known as the Tom Luang Cave Rescue. And you may be familiar with what happened there. There were 12 members of a youth soccer team and their assistant coach. And after practice one night, they decided that they would uh, go into these underground caverns that were near their, their town and go deep into the underground caverns and have some fun and to celebrate the birthday of one of their number. And this was in late June. Now, normally monsoon rains in Thailand start sometime in July. So they thought that they were, they were still uh, going to be okay going down into those caverns. But while they were down there, and now they were over two miles away from the mouth of the cave, monsoon rains start in earnest. And before long, the entire passageway from the mouth of the cave to exactly where the boys were was flooded. And in, it was intense rain that so quickly flooded the passageways into the cavern that they couldn't make their way out. In fact, they were lucky enough to find an outcropping of rock deep inside the cave where they could huddle together there to stay out of the water in hopes that perhaps it would recede. But quite to the contrary, the rain kept coming, the water kept rising, and they were trapped in there. And it was several days that they were on that little outcropping of rock, not knowing what their fate would be. It was dark, it was cold, it was wet. And then about nine days after they entered the cave, one day they see two heads bob up out of the water. Two heads, two rescue divers from Great Britain were the first to make it through all those dark passageways underwater to these boys. And and what they saw was hope in these two people that were there. And these men assured them that a rescue was being mounted. 10,000 people worked on this rescue. A hundred rescue divers were involved. Governments from around the world were involved. They had pumps to pump literal billions of liters of water out of the cavern. They had helicopters. They had ambulances. They had Navy SEALs from multiple nations, including our nation. And each time these rescue divers came through the cavern and popped up in front of those boys... They had hope that there was life on the other side, that through the dark passages and the swift moving water, there can be life because a rescue was underway. And ultimately, all 13 members that were trapped in that cavern were rescued. And I urge you, go and find the story. There's actually a movie that's been made about it. And what they had to do to get these boys out was was nothing short of miraculous. Now, I share this story with you because it tells of precious lives that were trapped in a deep, deep, dark cavern with no way out. I tell you this story because it tells of an extraordinary and tremendously expensive rescue, an effort that cost the lives of two of the divers that were attempting to get the boys out. I tell you this story because it portrays hope, the hope that those boys received when they saw real live people coming up out of that dark water to give them the good news that a rescue was underway and that there was life for them on the other side. 
If you haven't picked up on it yet, <laughs> I told you this story because it parallels the greatest rescue that has ever been mounted in human history. And we are the ones that are trapped in the cave. We are the ones that are in that dark place with no way out that we can muster on our own. Humanity has been trapped in a lethal cavern of sin since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. But God, but God mounted a rescue, one that was extraordinarily expensive. It cost him the life of his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, Jesus. Our hope of eternal life sprung out of the grave on that resurrection Sunday. Jesus is alive. And because he lives, we too are going to live forever if we put our faith and our trust in him. This morning we're going to examine the testimony of the rescue that has been given to us. And this rescue is provided through the means of living testimony. And we are going to trace that living testimony all the way back to Jesus Christ. Because first, we're going to look at his testimony, the testimony of his risen life. And in the process of talking about that testimony of his risen life, we're going to answer the question, why is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ so important to humanity? Why is it such a big deal? Why do we have this day where we, we recognize and celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to go back and look at the living testimony that Jesus gave to his apostles. He gave them very specific instructions about what they were to testify to. And then finally, we're going to close this with an examination of the testimony that your lives and mine are commanded to be to the world at large. The vast majority of people you encounter in your daily walks, in your daily work, in your daily school are lives that are still trapped in that cavern. And we have a commission to bring living testimony, to be those heads that pop up from the murky water and say, hey, there's a way out. So if you would please stand with me. Our text for this morning is going to be Luke chapter 24. We're going to be reading between verses 36 and 49, but for right now, I just want to read the verses between 36 and 45. So here's what it says, and then I'll give you context once we read the passage. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? Why do, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. 
Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, that we too might comprehend the scriptures, the things that you have allowed to be written, recorded, preserved, and conveyed to us all this time after the event that we might know that Jesus is alive. I pray this morning, Father, that you would guide our way through the passages of Scripture that you have given me for, the, for your precious people this morning, Lord, that they may see the truth concerning you and the truth concerning them and the, and the salvation, the rescue that you have mounted for them. Be with us now, Lord. Let nothing I say be anything other than that which you want these precious people to hear this morning. I pray this, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, the passage we read comes right after uh, an incident that's recorded in, in chapter 24 as well. And that is that after the resurrection and all of the scurrying around of disciples who are, who are hearing this news that the tomb is empty and a few of their number had, had seen the risen Christ, two men are on their way to Emmaus. Now, Emmaus was a village, it's still a village, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And so they're on the Emmaus Road, and they're walking together, and they're speaking about a, uh, the events of the day. And obviously, they were monumental events of the day. And a man joins them, and um, he's asking them, what's the hubbub, bub? What's going on? And they, they tell him, you know, haven't you heard and whatnot? And, and Jesus starts to explain the events of the day by opening the scriptures to them. Now, you have to understand the scriptures that he would have opened to them. You see it there in verse 27 of, of uh, Luke 24. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, at this point, they don't know that there's, they're walking with Jesus. But Jesus is using the old, what we call the Old Testament to reveal Christ to them. And then they pull off the road for the night to, to have a meal and to rest for the night. And it's at that point that Jesus reveals himself to them, but then he disappears from their presence. Obviously, the Emmaus Road disciples are blown away and they immediately get up from the table and they go right back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles what they saw, what had happened. And as they're in the room and the Emmaus Road disciples are explaining to the 11, because we know Judas now is out of the picture, Jesus appears in their midst. And as we read in our text, their reaction, understandably, <laughs> they're terrified. Now, in that moment, when Jesus comes into the midst of these individuals, his apostles... There are so many things you can imagine that he might share with them. There are so many things he might tell them. There are so many things he might even do. But he did one thing. Because he knows the heart of every person. He knew in that moment that they were in disbelief. The, the phrase, I couldn't believe my eyes, probably started right there in that room. <laughs> I couldn't believe my eyes. There he was. But their eyes were telling him true. And Jesus wanted desperately to make sure they knew that he was there bodily. Notice what he instructed. Verse 39. 
Behold my hands and my feet. What's he showing them? He's showing them the scars, the holes where the nails were driven. It is I myself. Handle me. Say, touch me. Hold me. Slap me. And then I'll slap you back. And then you'll know I'm here in my body. A spirit does not have flesh and bones like I have, he tells them. And then he did something, when I, which I'm sure he's done with them many, many times. And that is, he said, got any food? And he eats food in their presence because eating food obviously is something that only somebody in their body would do. Now, we, we, we come to this, this, this question. Why is it that the bodily resurrection of Jesus is, a, is such a big deal? Many people, even today, believe that Jesus' existence on earth was as a spirit. That, that, that Jesus was never really a human being like you and me, a touchy-feely, eating fish and honeycomb kind of human like we are. And this belief is highly contrary to the truth of scripture and damaging to the sacrifice that Jesus represents. To believe as a true Christian believes is to know that Jesus Christ is God, but also that he is a human being. This is called the hypostatic union. It's only happened once in all of creation. God is God Jesus is fully man and fully God. And so the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the central bullseye of our faith. Why is that so? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, it proves that the rescue of humanity has been accomplished. You see, we are all in that dark cave. We we die because of sin, the curse of sin on humanity. Romans 6.23 tell, tells us, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's because of sin that we suffer. You got a backache right now? You got a cold? You're suffering from a, a chronic condition? It's because of the sin nature that has corrupted human beings. You have friends who have died Do you ever wonder about your own death? The reality of your death is all tied to sin entering. And of course, Romans also tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, all will die a mortal death. It's guaranteed. That cave that we're in, that dark cave, it takes 100% of those trapped in that cave and remain in that cave. It takes them to the grave. Jesus overcame death after taking upon himself the sins of the world. Therefore, he overcame the very thing that takes us to our grave, sin. And he's demonstrated his power over the lethality of sin. And therefore, he has the power to forgive us of our sins. This is the way the Apostle Paul summed this all up, because He's writing to the Corinthian church about this issue because there were those that doubted the resurrection. There was a whole sect of Judaism known as the Sadducees. Very prominent uh, members of the Sanhedrin were from that sect. Not all of them, but several of them. They did not believe in anything of the supernatural side of Scripture. They did not believe in the resurrection. And that, that influence was still on 
Jewish people who came to faith in Christ. And so now they're pondering whether the resurrection is real. This is what Paul writes. This is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 through 22. And this sums it up beautifully. Paul writes this. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You see that line he draws between death and sin and being raised from the dead and conquering sin? Then also those who have fallen asleep, or that is to die, in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. See, he, he, he sets up the straw man case. If it were as you say, Sadducees, or people who don't believe in the resurrection, then all of this is a nonsense. We can all get an early start on lunch. I don't even need to finish this message. But notice what he goes on to say. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. And then he goes on, of course, to describe that order. What he clearly says is, no, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the rescue. We are still in our sins if Christ has not been raised. Because that means that sin had power over him. He was our only hope, okay? He, he was the one diver that could make it through those deep, dark passages. And if he doesn't make it, none of us can make it. We, can, we have no way out. But he did make it. He did raise from the dead. And that tells us that we will one day too. Second reason why the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important, it's a big, big deal, is because it proves Jesus' claim to be God. We know that only God can raise a dead person to life. Jesus said that his proof, when he was pressed by the Pharisees about his claim to deity, he said that the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. Now, he's using Jonah as a metaphor for Jonah, who was three days in the belly of a great big fish and then was resusputed out of the, <laughs> out of the fish. And this is the imagery that he applies to himself. And Jesus had said all along that the most important sign that he can give of his being deity would be the resurrection. Now, you know that in the days leading up to the cross, before he came into the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus did another miraculous thing in, in the town of Bethany, which was very close by. We know that he, lay, or he raised up Lazarus from the dead. And it it's an interesting thing. Many of you probably have missed this when you've read the, the passage where, where Lazarus is sick. Jesus is in another place. I think it was in Jericho or somewhere, you know, far enough away that it would be day's journey to get to where, to get to Bethany. And, and a breathless messenger comes to Jesus while Jesus is in this other place. It says, 
the, the brother whom you love, he's referring to Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, is, is very, very sick. They need you now. And this is what you read. This is found in John chapter 11. And I had to read it like three times to say, is that really? It, it's the syntax of the verse that, that's, that's question, that raised the question in my mind. This is what it says in John 11, verses 5 and 6. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that would be Mary, and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, Lazarus. But then in verse 6, it says, so, comma, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's like, your friend is sick, and we know you could probably help. Hurry. I love them. So I'm going to stay here two more days. And of course, when he gets there, you know, Jesus wants to go to the tomb and say, no, no, Lord, he stinketh. That means he was in the grave for days in the hot Israel sun. So why, how do we, that so, that word so at the beginning of verse 6, ties two ideas together. I love them. I'm in a delay two days. How does that delay evidence the love of verse 5? Let me tell you why. Because the most important thing, the most loving thing that Jesus wanted for his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would be to know that he is God. To know that he is God. And so he waits two days. Lazarus indeed dies. Jesus shows up, rolls away the stone, and raises him from the dead. So much did he love Lazarus, Mary, and Martha that he wanted them to know that day in advance who he was. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is him doing that for you and me as well. And then finally, another reason why the resurrection is so important is because it proves the scriptures are true. Notice in our text, back in our text, that... um, we, we learn that Jesus, in verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then earlier in the chapter, in verse 27, when he's with the Emmaus Road disciples, we read there, he begins at Moses and all the prophets, he expounds to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so you'd have to ask yourself, does the law, does the law, does the prophets, does the Psalms speak to Jesus, because we, we, we assume, I mean, most sort of surface-level Bible students figure Jesus shows up in the New Testament. And that's why a lot of Christians don't bother with the Old Testament, because they view it as irrelevant. It's talking about one little country of people who get in a lot of trouble. Everybody seems to hate them. And, and, and we, they don't, it doesn't matter to us. But it matters a great deal. I, I can't, we, the, the, the time doesn't permit to take you to all of the places in the Old Testament that construct the perfect story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And I love that kind of thing. 
I love to do that kind of thing. But time doesn't permit us. Let me just give you a smattering, though. The law. Well, what was given in the law? Why the whole sacrificial system, the whole ritualistic feast day system, all of it portrays Christ in the many different facets. The most notable is perhaps the greatest feast of the whole lot, and that is the one that the Jewish people are celebrating right now, Passover. Everything about the Holy Week was timed precisely to what was going on in the Passover week, including the fact that when Jesus came in to Jerusalem on that, on that Sunday that we celebrated last week, that was the very day that the priests are moving through all the lambs that have been brought to select the ones that would be right and perfect for sacrifice. And here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And he shows up on that day. And everything about the the, the presentation of Jesus, the slaughter of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is portrayed in that, that whole ceremony of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's all shown there. But there's another, there's another a very specific reference, and that is that in Moses' time, now we're talking thousands of years before Jesus is going to show up. In Moses' time... He tells the Jewish people that God is going to send them a prophet. You find this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, between verses 15 and 19. This becomes a a question that's on the Jewish people's mind all the way from Moses to Jesus. They're wondering, who's this prophet? This is what Moses tells them. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him, capital H, you shall hear. So he, he's in, in that first verse, he's telling him, look, God's going to raise up from among you, from among you Jewish people, he's going to raise up a prophet like me. Why like Moses? Because Moses is leading his people out of bondage. And Jesus would do the same thing for his people first, for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. He goes on, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. Now, that's a very important reference right there. Jesus is reminding them, hey, remember when we were at the base of Mount Sinai? Mount Horeb's another name for it. And you heard the thunderings and the majesty and the voice of God, and it terrified you. And you can go back in Exodus, and we'll get there on Wednesday night, and you'll find the place where the people say, oh, please, find an intermediary between him and us because we don't want to be in the presence of that kind of power and holiness. It's too painful. It's too frightful. And if you look in Hebrews chapter 1, you'll see that God complies. He spoke to the people through his son, So he goes on and says, And the Lord said to me, What what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Now, people wondered through the course of time, was Isaiah that prophet? Was Jeremiah? Was Ezekiel? Was Daniel? Was Hosea? Was Zephaniah, was Zechariah? No, 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 no. John the Baptist shows up. 
wow, this guy is obviously a prophet. By the way, he's considered the last of the, New Test- or the Old Testament prophets. And he was specifically asked, are you that prophet? And he says, no, the one that, that comes after me, I'm not fit to tie his sandal. He is the prophet. Who is that? Jesus. Hallelujah. How about the prophets? Did the prophets speak about Jesus? Oh, my gosh. If you go to uh, Isaiah chapter 53, this is known as the chapter of the suffering servant. Now, here we have um, Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. And this is what he writes about Jesus there. This is found in Isaiah 53 between verses 4 and 11. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is why we sang that song, Man of Sorrows. It's this story. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Romans 3.23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Bingo. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, of the crucifixion, and you're hearing it right here first. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. There's the Passover imagery. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare this, his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now get this part, verse 10. This always moves me so much. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Do you see that picture of the atonement right there, 700 years before it happens? But what about the resurrection? Does, is there anything in the, in the Old Testament about the resurrection? Well, uh, well before I get to that, um, how about the second advent of Jesus? Was anything said in the, in the uh, scriptures about that? Well, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and the na- his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward forever, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. And so the Lord has laid out in, 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 in the prophets clearly the story, the, the, the account of Jesus before he comes. These would be the kinds of scriptures that Jesus would be showing these men, saying, well, look here, and look here. And remember when this happened? Remember this? Well, here it is in scripture. And then the Psalms. Now, Jesus is standing in that room with the Emmaus disciples and with the apostles. This is post-crucifixion. 
And if they weren't eyewitnesses of it, and many of them were, most of them, well, actually the apostles were scattered by that point. But they knew the account. And so how amazing could it be that Jesus would take them to Psalm 22, written a thousand years before their time. And in Psalm 22, verses 14 and 18, we read, and this is the, this is the, best, this is the best account of the suffering of the cross that there is in the Bible. You don't even find it like this in the New Testament. In any of the Gospels, you do not get such an intimate look at the suffering of Jesus. It says there, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. By the way, crucifixion had not even been invented by that time as a means of execution. So people would probably wonder, why would they pierce his hands and feet? I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. It's exactly what happened. And then, and then the resurrection, Psalm 1610, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, but 1610 says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol is the Jewish word. Hades is the... Is the um, um, Hebrew word, or I'm sorry, Sheol is the uh, Hebrew word and Hades is the Greek word, but it's the place of afterlife before either heaven or hell. And, and, and so we're seeing there that he will not, his soul will not be left there. He will be raised. So Jesus gives them this testimony of his life. He's there in their midst. He's physically present. Touch me, feel me, see me. I'm eating food. And then he tells his apostles and disciples, here's the testimony I want you to bring. And for this, we read uh, the rest of our text, verse 46. Then he said to them, this is in Luke chapter 24, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things behold I send the promise of my father upon you but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high the message that Jesus gives them is that he is alive notice that he he underscores that you are witnesses you are witnesses of these things this was very important for the first wave of, of witnesses to go out, was that they saw the risen Christ. This was, this was crucial. This is why when the 11 went to replace Judas, who now has died, they looked for somebody who, like them, had seen the risen Christ. And they selected Matthias, who was one who, like them, had, was a witness to these things. Jesus tells them here that they've got two very powerful truths that are going to underscore and fortify their witness. It's going to make their witness credible. The first is that they are indeed eyewitnesses. And this is something that scoffers of believers in Jesus Christ will often bring up to you. 
they will say that the whole idea of the resurrection is a fable. It is, uh, it is not uh, scientific. It's not reasonable to assume. And the thing we have to understand is no matter what, what uh, philosophy you follow in terms of the presence and the creation of all things, whatever your theory is, it has to start with the supernatural. What does supernatural mean? It means outside of nature. Well, nature had to have a beginning. So there are things that are decidedly supernatural. But the thing that Jesus gave us to rely on was not just a hope and a prayer. It was eyewitness testimony. We prove a lot of things in this world, including guilt or innocence, based on eyewitness testimony. That is what is known as an historic proof. You don't prove things in history through formulas and mathematic equations. You prove them by credible testimony, whether it's the testimony of a document or the testimony of a person recorded in a document or the very testimony of a live person. And there are many live people who see this. So we have that truth that they saw the risen Christ and they have a second thing. And that's what Jesus says there in verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with the power from on high. Obviously, what he's speaking about here is the Holy Spirit of God. On the day of Pentecost, which would come some days after this, they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit living in them. Every one of us here, who is a believer in Jesus Christ, has that same Holy Spirit living in them. And it is the power of the Spirit working with the testimony, in their case, the testimony of eyewitness account, that will drive home the message of salvation. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that it's God who works in us to both to will and to do his good pleasure. And we do his good pleasure because of the power of the Spirit in us. So Jesus gives these men that instruction. He gives them that direction that they are to minister to the world the truth of his resurrection and the power that it had on their lives, that that their lives were transformed. Paul the Apostle preached this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He preached to thousands that were there, his countrymen, This is Acts 2, verse 22, picking up there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested by God to, uh, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pain of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David said concerning him, now he he quotes from Psalm 16 that I read a moment ago, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then he goes on to say that David the patriarch, he, he's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us. But being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He's, he said that David knew this. David prophesied this. 
And this is the testimony that I, Peter, bring to you because I saw it with my eyes. Paul's testimony. Uh, Paul testified to the, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he names off a whole roster of people who are eyewitnesses, including all the apostles, including 500 people who at once saw the risen Christ. And then when he testifies before Agrippa, once again, you see in Acts chapter 26, he comes before Agrippa and he tells him that he had seen the risen Christ and that that, that knowledge of the risen Christ transformed his life because he knew the rescue had been accomplished. And these apostles, their mission was to make disciples the Great Commission is to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. What are disciples but people who follow Christ? What is the message that Christ has given us to bring to the world? That Jesus is alive. And because he lives and I put my faith and trust in him, I have eternal life. And I have a different life now than I had before. You know, Paul the Apostle, in writing to uh, the the uh, Corinthians in his second letter to the Corinthians he reminded them that their lives are epistles living epistles he said in 2 Corinthians 3 2 and 3 you are our epistle written on our hearts known and read by all men clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us written not with the ink but by the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh that is the heart you and I fulfill that purpose. We are a written message to the world that Jesus is alive and in his life is life. In his life is rescue. And we have been commissioned, you and I, to be living messengers, ambassadors. Again, I take you to Paul and I apologize. I don't apologize actually. I've taken you to a lot of scripture because you need to hear God say, if I stood up here and told you these things, that would be nice. Let's have lunch. But I want you to know that the Bible you have in your hand has every bit of this message and every bit of its significance. This is, this is, what we, this is who we are. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. That's part of your testimony. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us, given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. I'm pleading with you. God is pleading through me right now. Pleading with you, be reconciled to Christ. You are in a cave. Those dark, murky, fast-moving waters, that's, that's the sin that flows in the midst of the world. 
We're all, we're all affected by it. I stand here before you as a sinner, a fellow sinner. I'm a fellow beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I'm a fellow cave dweller who made it to the other side. And I'm coming back to tell you that a rescue has been mounted. There's a way out. And that way out brings life. That's, that's the message of today. It's not chocolate rabbits. <laughs> it's not eggs with toys in them. It's not just a family gathering. I mean, uh, one way to spend Easter or Resurrection Sunday would be to be completely alone that you might ponder your eternal life that Christ has won for you. So I'm going to ask Vince and Christina to come up. We're going to go to communion now. And if you could just bring the lights down a smidge. Here's what I'd like to do. Our communion. Communion is an ordinance that that was done, made, created on that night before Jesus went to the cross. And it was, it was using elements that would be very common in a meal of the time. Bread and wine. The broken bread. Jesus was the bread of life, right? Is the bread of life. His broken body. The, the wine being the poured out blood. The two aspects of the atonement, the sacrifice. And Jesus did that with his apostles on that fateful night. And he wanted them to go, he wanted this to be an ordinance for his church so that they would remember what he did. Jesus had opened and revealed himself to those people through the scriptures. Many of them we went through this morning that they would know. But he wanted them to remember the sacrifice. And it was something given to the church. It wasn't just given willy-nilly for anyone to do because it's what you do when you're in a crowd of people and they're doing something that you're not doing. It was very special to the church because there's no saving power in it. There's only memorial significance to it, to remember the saving that has happened. And so the way we typically take it is um, we have a communion song playing and, and then you are invited to come up as you will and to take the elements of bread and wine, which is grape juice in our case, and, um, and take that back to your seat and take that with your family member. If you're with somebody who can't get up here themselves, help them out. But while we're doing that, if anybody here is not sure or is sure that they are not walking with Jesus Christ, that they have not accepted him as their Lord and Savior. I would ask that you make today that day. It's cold and it's dark in that cave. And 100% of those cave dwellers will die for eternity. And I'm here to tell you there's a way out. There's a rescue. It was expensive. It's not costing you anything, but it cost Jesus everything. And so as the communion elements are being taken, if you would, while people are coming up to those tables, you can just come right here with me. We could pray. 
that today would be your day. That today would be the day that you give your heart to Jesus Christ. That you end the captivity today. That today becomes the most joyous day of your life. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. And and then as soon as I finish the prayer, you folks can start to sing. And as soon as they start to sing, you're welcome to come up to the table. I'm going to be right here. I'm a rescue diver. And I'll be here to swim you out of that cavern. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your precious son, for his precious blood, for his broken body, all of which he did for us. He gave his life, the life that was supposed to be taken from us. Instead, he gave us eternal life. And so, Lord, we are so very thankful and joyous. But, Lord, we have a burden for those in our lives that are not walking out of that cave yet. And we lift them up in our prayers today. Lord, that you would touch their hearts, that you would bring them forward, that you would save their life for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.